The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. New York's hybrid working pain, Toshiba is spoiled for choice. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from Canary Wharf in London. Hybrid working is an appealing prospect to the masses, but it's a thorn in the side of office landlords that are struggling to lure people back into skyscrapers in New York. In April, only 40% of Manhattan's office employees were at their desk on an average day. If that kind of attendance continues, it will be tough for office owners to command higher rents to cover their costs. Also, shareholders in Toshiba may be suffering from a form of corporate whiplash. In the past six months, the $22 billion Japanese company has switched from plotting a three-way split to discussing the sale of certain units to outlining a longer-term strategy for the company. The more attractive and simpler option may be a sale, and the conglomerate appears to have no shortage of suitors. Eight non-binding offers have been submitted, and buyout giants KKR, Blackstone, and Brookfield Asset Management are in the mix, according to Reuters. First up, Jennifer Seba beams in from New Jersey to talk about how hybrid working is storing up a towering problem for office landlords. Next, Jennifer Hughes and I chat about Toshiba's smorgasbord of options for the future of the business. Working from home has been a really nice byproduct of the pandemic if you're an office worker, but not so much if you're a landlord looking at your empty office space. Here to talk to you about it is Jennifer Seba, who is in New Jersey, I think. Is that right, Jen? That is correct. Yes. So, <laughs> so you're not in the hustle and bustle. You're one of these people who's working from home, not filling up a desk, not going down to your, we're in London, so it's mainly Pret-a-Manger you go down to for your coffees. You're not like building the economy in that way. So yes, tell me, tell me all about the story you wrote about basically this whole idea of the fact that people are going into the office, but not in, not in droves and what that means then for the people who own those buildings. Yeah. So, I mean, I have to say this is a kind of a personal view in the sense that like I'm living like, you know, trekking into New York on a hybrid model, kind of as you've mentioned. And I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is our our office building, for example, is in, you know, the heart of Times Square that is like in the middle of New York City. It's all the hustle and bustle. It's 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 like, you know, pre-pandemic, it was you just had to elbow your way through crowds. It was just incredible. So now the commute is it's much easier in the sense that when I'm walking up from the train station to to Times Square, there's just not as many people. So it, it got me thinking, it's like, OK, what is going on? Like, you know, we were two and a half years into this pandemic. A lot of people are still working from home part of the time. And I wanted to dig into the numbers to see what it really means. And so there was a survey that came out not that long ago for the partnership for New York City. And they found that four out of 10 uh, Manhattan employees are in the office on any given uh, weekday, which is kind of, it's a staggering number if you really think about it. And so what does that mean for office buildings? It's like, you know, I think a lot of companies are looking at those numbers and saying, OK, we think this trend is here to stay. And how do we rethink our real estate portfolio? I think that's that's definitely true. And in your piece as well, you talk about there are some some obviously some outliers to this, right? So the investment banks have been saying, get back into work. We want you at your desk. Well, they accept a little bit of working from home in certain roles, but by and large, they sort of think, I think Goldman Sachs said it was an aberration. Elon Musk said, you know, 40 hours in the office, that's your job. 
So there is there's some outliers, but I would agree with you. And certainly in London, we're seeing the same thing. Tubes are much more manageable. Um, there aren't as many people in the office. And it looks like obviously this this hybrid model, as you said, is here to stay. I mean, when I was looking at this way back at the start of the pandemic, there was some interesting views, which was that actually people would need more space, that even if, as you said, 40% of people were coming in, the fact that you had this kind of deadly virus that was being spread around, you needed to separate people, you needed to, you know, you needed bigger lifts, you would probably need bigger buildings. And it doesn't look like that is kind of coming true, right? Because this sort of the hot desking model is still very much around, even in our own building, the hot desking model is still there and that hasn't changed. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's some stats that I think kind of point to what's happening here. So in Manhattan, office vacancy rate is at 21%, which is a record high. And this is according to Cushman and Wakefield. So that is the the average historic average is around 11%. So so you start there, right? And then you look at all the companies, even the banks. So HSBC is a good example. So they're moving their headquarters in New York City to the Hudson Yard District. And it's a newer development. And they're taking um, less than half the space that they already have. So even though there's some movement happening and and there's some trading up, if you will, like I think, you know, if you own, quote unquote, a class A property, meaning that really great amenities, it's it's a you know new building. I, I think there's advantages there, like people are sort of or companies are looking at those types of buildings. But at the end of the day, Manhattan is full of office buildings. And just to kind of put that stat that I they said earlier about the 21% vacancy rate, to kind of put it into perspective, that is more vacant office space than any central business district at anywhere in the United States, except for Washington, DC and Chicago. I mean, it's just incredible how much office space is kind of currently floating around. And I don't think that's gonna get any better because companies are looking you know, they're going to take advantage of this moment, you know, like they want to reduce their rents. Yeah. And they're all facing, obviously, higher costs as well. I mean, that vacancy rate number, I think, is really interesting because, again, speaking to the landlords on this side of the pond, what they kept saying is, you know, people are really locked into long term leases. This could, you know, this is going to play itself out. People will want to come back into the office more. They'll get sick of working from home and employers will sort of demand it. And that's how it will play out. But I think it's interesting that if the vacancy rate is that high, it means people are not making those decisions. They're not deciding to book those leases. They're, those properties are empty for, for, yeah, for, that, yeah. for that amount. And, and I also think it's really hard to put that toothpaste back in the bottle, right? So people have been used to two and a half years of working part-time at home and part-time in the office or, or whatever your, your schedule happens to be. I think it's going to be much, much more difficult for companies to all of a sudden demand that people come back to work five days a week. In fact, this partnership for New York City found that 80% of people that they surveyed expect hybrid working to be, you know, a thing uh, that's going to be here to stay. And that is a flip from 6%. (laughs) pandemic. So, I mean, that, that tells you something. It kind of tells you the direction of, of where corporations are thinking. Well, it's interesting as well. I, I'm wondering about the companies themselves or the landlords themselves. What are their sort of valuations telling you? What are their shares doing as a result of all of this? I looked at two, Fornado and SL Green. They have a lot of New York properties, right? And their shares have been down 
quite a bit. So yeah, Vernado, their shares are down around 45% in SL Green. They're down around 30%, and this is in three years, right? It's going to be tough for them. And, and what's going to happen too is that as these leases start popping up again, right, that, that there's a long tail to this. It's going to start happening, and then people are going to start, or companies are going to start renegotiating their leases. And, you know, it also depends on what kind of portfolio mix you have. If you have a lot of class A properties, you're probably going to be better off than some of the other, you know, landlords that have older buildings that are quite costly to retrofit and to, and to refurbish. Absolutely. I mean, what, what I found, again, just this was sort of from the European side, the, the listed landlords seemed to have more of the class A properties. And I kept kind of trying to figure out who owns these kind of second rate or D-rate buildings, and it, it seemed to be that it, it seemed to be an awful lot of private landlords that yeah. seemed to be kind of sitting on these on these buildings, but definitely a problem for them. But you did a really nice calculation, Jen, in your piece, which I just wondered if you'd walk me through a little bit, just in terms of what we might see, like what could it look like in terms of the actual occupancy of these buildings if we, if we continue as we are? So there are about a million workers in Manhattan right now. Um, and this is what this is, again, the, the partnership for New York City found. And this is basically that is pretty much in line pre pandemic, right? So then if you sort of assume that 80% of employers that they surveyed expect hybrid to stay, right? And, and this is a very loose calculation. So let's say they're just kind of expecting 80% of their employees to, to track in at one point of the work week, you know, at some point during the work week. And then in September, they expect, co companies expect around 50% hybrid working, right? So what I did was I kind of took all those numbers and I thought, okay, what does this look like basically September on or just from, you know, what does this look like for companies, you know, that are expecting this hybrid working thing to stay? So that would mean that 600,000 seats in total would be needed. And that is 40% fewer deaths than were needed just over two years ago. So, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic number and a pretty dramatic drop, right? And that's assuming that people come in a couple of days a week, right? But but you need, you're going to end up reducing your space. I mean, like uh, we, we see it in our own office space too. I mean, it's, it's not anywhere near as full as it was pre-pandemic because people are kind of trickling in when they want. Absolutely. Well, Jen, look, I think this is going to be something that we are going to be seeing for many years. Uh, so we will surely talk again. But thank you so much for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Toshiba, the company that may have made your television set growing up, is facing a multitude of choices. Here to talk to you about it is Jennifer Hughes. Hi, Jen. Hey, Amy. Well, so talk me through this. First of all, as I said, Toshiba, this is my my limited knowledge of this company is, yeah, they make television sets, laptops, that, that's how I kind of see them. Tell us, what does this company do? Because it's an absolutely ginormous company that seems to do so many things. Yeah, the last time most of us would have owned Toshiba products, hi-fi was a current word that we were using. <laughs> um, now it's transformed itself mostly into sort of solutions. This is a word they've really taken to heart. Call it industrial technology. You've got anything to do with Internet of Things and smart cities. There are other kind of buzzwords. 
They do the insides of motors for trains, traffic control systems, air traffic control, water treatments. There's a military technology element to it. There's elevators and lighting. I don't mean bedside lamps. I mean kind of lighting for offices and that kind of thing. So sort so, of industrial kind of industrial lighting. Yes. So they're still very much present in our everyday lives. We're just probably not using their laptops or other products. They sold the brand name for the laptops and other consumer electronics a few years back. Okay. So they've had quite a difficult time, right, over the past years, which is sort of unusual for a Japanese company to, to kind of go through the amount of things that are facing them. Can you tell us a little bit just context wise, what is going on with this company? Sure. We'd need more than one podcast to cover everything in the last few years. This has been a drama like I've never seen before. We've had everything from accounting scandals, multi-billion dollar write-downs on businesses, various probes, all sorts of things gone on. Look, just in the last 18 months, and this has really gone on since 2015, what happened with the write-downs and the rest is in 2017, the key thing is they raised about $5 billion um, for, in fresh equity from outside investors. Now that gave them shareholders like Farallon and other pretty mouthy activist pushy funds, which is really unusual in Japan. Normally these guys are very much the outsiders. Now they make up to 30 or 40% of the share register. So that's made everything at Toshiba much more vocal and visible than you normally find in a Japanese company. Just in the last 18 months, We've had the shareholders force an EGM. We've had an investigation into the company's relationship with the government. The, oust, the CEO was then ousted. The chair was then voted out. Well, three CEOs in the last 12 months. We've had one strategic review and three different outcomes from it. And now they're talking about selling the whole company to private equity. And that's just the last 12 to 18 months. So this is it. Enter this new boss, Taro Shimada. And he is basically examining all these options right he's kind of laying out all the different the different things is there one option that's being because i guess the one thing they could do is not sell to private equity right they can just keep the business they're kind of doing a review on that i mean is the, are they kind of leaning towards towards one outcome that they would prefer is there a preferred outcome for this business not that they will admit to publicly at least what they've done recently as well is they've changed they've put forward a new slate of directors for the board and we've got two shareholder representatives going onto the board. This is not uncontentious, but it is a big shift. So you've got someone from Elliott and someone from Farallon sitting there. Now, Elliott and Farallon are both big shareholders. So in that way, it's justified. But these are guys who have been pushing for a sale, a complete sale to private equity. They are, company is also looking at that. So there's eight private equity groups that have sort of submitted non-binding proposals after we have the AGM in the end of this month in June. In July, they should get towards doing due diligence and binding second round bids. But what Toshiba will tell you is, of course, that has they had to come up with proposals that are doable, um, will pass security issues and all the rest of it. So we could end up with strategic spin-offs and other bits, we could end up with a private equity buyout. And that's what the share price is suggesting they want at the moment, the shareholders want. But this is Toshiba. You couldn't have predicted any of this a couple of years ago. So and it's so, a great person that says where it's going to go next. Absolutely. And so the, the names you mentioned in your piece, so there's KKR, Blackstone, Brookfield. Is there one of those that, that have sort of broken cover yet to kind of explain what they think that they could do with this business? Or is it just more just a buyout and, and, and they'll kind of figure it out as they buy it? 
it's very much behind the scenes at the moment. Nobody has confirmed anything. It probably is with the size of the company. I mean, Toshiba's market cap is 20 odd billion dollars at the moment. So to put a premium on that, we're probably talking about a buyout consortium. And that could be a group that involves a Japanese firm as well. So that might help with the security side of things around the military technology bits. It could be two or three groups together led by one. All that sort of jockeying is going on behind the scenes at the moment. And if this company does stay kind of solo, it's, it's it, it basically Shimada just manages to keep it all together and it's not sold off. What are the options there? What kind of strategic changes could be made, do you think, to this business that, that could improve its fortunes and, and maybe make it less liable that the CEO will be gone in the next six months? <laughs> he recently he sort of presented last week his strategy for the company. It was interesting because he's focusing on the software element, the idea that you've got these siloed software engineers, 7,000 plus of them across this about like 100,000 plus employees in Toshiba altogether. And they're sprinkled in different divisions around the world. His idea is creating some sort of software platform so ideas aren't stuck in various divisions and they can start using some of these, uh, some of what they already have in terms of, say, lighting solutions is one, that you can get data and other information from your industrial lighting in offices in terms of people flow, traffic, other sorts of things. Same with their elevators. And you can use this data. Now, whether Toshiba can do this and whether they could actually capitalise on it are two very, very you know, open questions at this point. But that's the sort of company he sees. Interesting. I don't know what the likes of KKR, Blackstone, Bain and the rest are seeing at the moment. So it's sort of giving ideas to buyers as well to kind of come up with these notions that may or may not work could also be something that is used by by a new buyer. Well, this is what he said in the media briefing last Friday, and I asked him this, and he said, you know, because his vision could be very, very short-lived if one of these guys buys the company in the next year. But what he said was he hoped that his blueprint might give them ideas to take it forward. I mean, I would suspect there will be spin-offs and bits and pieces will go, but there are so many bits and pieces in this company, it's really hard to keep track of at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Well, one to watch certainly over the next month and I would imagine beyond. Um, thanks very much for that, Jen. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong and Sharon Lam in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on the cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.